In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions. Be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote, from accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And welcome to episode six of Scottish Blethers. Our hosts are Helen, I'm Liz, and I'm Susan. Coming up in the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore the following themes. Helen, what are you going to be chatting about? Well, I'm Helen and my blether is about castles. Oh, good. We've got quite a selection of those. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Susan, and I'm going to be talking to you about the power behind the throne, women in the 14 and 1500s. This is Liz, and I'm going to be talking about fairies, the little people, and I'm not talking about Tinkerbell. Ah, and we're going to finish the episode with our favourite Scots word of the week. Welcome to episode six of Scottish Blethers. So, Helen, castles, tell us more. Yes, well... It's estimated there were once up to 3,000 castles in Scotland. But today, there are visible remains for just over 800 medieval castles. And about 300 of those have got substantial stone or brick remains. The first castles appeared in Scotland in the 1100s, probably due to the Norman influence. Many castles were constructed to take advantage of strategic and fortified locations within the existing landscapes. Good examples are Edinburgh Castle and Stirling Castle, built on top of high volcanic rocks which offer a clear viewpoint to all the surrounding landscapes. Scotland's warring past meant that the earliest castles have been battered by siege engines and cannon, then altered, rebuilt, or even just vanished. Most castles were rarely called into military service, so their peacetime role was their actual primary role. An example of this is the 16th century tower house at Canaird Head, built by the local Fraser Lairds, which was altered to be the base for Scotland's first lighthouse in 1787. Some castles could be described as romantic, Loch Leven Castle, for instance. Mary, Queen of Scots, was held prisoner there before her dramatic escape in 1568, aided by the young Willie Douglas, who was clearly smitten by her. Post probably the most romantic of all Scottish castles is Elandonan Castle. It is the most photographed castle in Scotland. Picturesque fairy tale castles abound in Scotland, such as Dunrobin Castle, with its fairy tale spires and cliff top location. And if we look at the artist's impression of how Stirling Castle looked when James IV built the entrance, you would be forgiven for thinking that he'd been inspired by Walt Disney's Sleeping Beauty Castle. Or was it the other way around? 
The pink fairy tale turrets of Craigiebar Castle are said to have inspired the design of Disney's Cinderella Castle. By the end of the 18th century, many of the nobility sought more elegant and stylish living. What actually prompted the refurbishing of a castle was an anticipated visit by the monarch. Queen Victoria's visit to Blair Castle is dramatised in the TV series Victoria. The earliest part of this castle dates from 1269, but it has been remodelled through the centuries to the beautiful castle it is today. And this evolution in style was happening in many Scottish castles, and even down south it was happening at Downton Abbey. Castles which have been lived in by the same families for generations are now open to the public and their beautiful landscape gardens can be enjoyed by all. Historic Environment Scotland and the National Trust for Scotland are responsible for the upkeep of many of the castles in Scotland. So we hope that you will come and visit some of these castles when you're in Scotland. Liz, have you anything you'd like to say about castles and your favourite castle perhaps? I think I like when I, I discover a castle, you know, when you're out wandering on a walk and you find a romantic ruin out on some headland or something like that. I think I, I like the sort of the mystery and romance of who once lived there. <laughs> yes, I think we've got, you know, such variety of castles, some made out of red sandstone. I'm thinking about Tantallon Castle along the East Lothian coast. I love going to Tantallon yes, and the views yeah. out to the Bass Rock on a sunny day are amazing. And you can kind of frame the picture of the island in one of the old window frames and Absolutely. you get some great pictures there. On that topic of Tantallon, I, I do a, a tour, Mary Queen of Scots tour, and you can basically tour Mary Queen of Scots by the castle she visited. Yes. And Tantallon is, is an important part of that story as well. So, yeah, I agree. And of course, the royals moved out and about all around Scotland from castle to castle because they literally ate people out of house and home. So they had to move on so they could get more food. <laughs> yeah. um, but I suppose the castles was also part about their, uh, their defence. And, you know, look at Stirling Castle and the important role it had. Yeah. But I have to say that Stirling Castle probably is my most favourite. And since oh, here we go again. Anything Stirling and it's Helen's yeah. favourite. <laughs> but Daughter but of the Rock. That's right, that's right. Since they've done the the all the refurbishments, Stirling Castle, you can actually feel what it must have been like to live there. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, just thinking about that, I, I think probably one of my favourites is Urquhart Castle because it sits out on that headland. And as you sail up Loch Ness, as you cruise up Loch Ness, you arrive at it as people would have done in the past, which is by water. And you really get the feel of it as you're, as you're approaching. But I can't help wonder about Urquhart because I always think about the hill and behind it and go, that's far too easy to be able to attack it with, you know, arrows and things getting slung down on it. Yeah, or if you're good old Edward, he brought his boys' toys with him and brought his trebuchet. His boys' toys. (laughs) (laughs) So trebuchet, a bit like a large slingshot for throwing boulders at the uh, castle walls. And they've got a model one there today with the boulders lying alongside it. So if the the castle gave up too quickly when it was under siege to Edward and the, the king of the English... He would instruct them to put it back up again so he could knock it down so he could get his money's worth with his new toy. (laughs) With his new toy. (laughs) And of course, all the the lovely grass on top of the walls at Stirling Castle was put there as part of the defences so the the cannonballs or anything thrown at it by a trebuchet would sink into the grass rather than bounce off the wall. 
and yeah. do further damage. Yeah, because of course uh, the shrapnel did more damage than the actual yeah. um, cannonballs and muskets themselves. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that's when you know castles were very much about defence. That they moved after that to being more about being your pretty little castle in the Highlands. And I think Dunrobin is a perfect example oh. of that. You know, it starts from its its core central part, which I think was about the fourteen hundreds, and then it's got this beautiful French style chateau front to it that was added, looking out onto the sea with the beautiful Versailles style gardens and the you know in below it. Yeah. You couldn't help be absolutely awed by it, arriving there as a guest of the castle. I'm not sure anybody else might be awed by it. So controversial today because, of course, it was built on the wealth of the Duke of Sutherland, um, who's yes. a very controversial yes. character. Yeah. So, you know, it was um, on the, the backs of others' hard labour that he was able to build Dunrobin. I know, and I I tend to mention about that history after yes. we visit the castle yes. because I've done it before in the past and I've had guests that have refused to go into the castle because of it. Yeah. So it's still very emotive to this day, yeah. even though a lot of the stuff happened in the late 1800s. Too much to talk about in this, but it is a subject we should come back to, which is controversial figures. I mean, at the moment we're talking about those that were involved in slavery, but um, we will come back at some point and do the Duke of Sutherland and uh, why um, it's so controversial today. And I think I think probably one of the one of the castles which has got its own controversy is Codder Castle. I yes. love going round Codder Castle because it is a home. In the winter, the, the Countess lives there and we're, we're walking through her rooms. And Absolutely. I just love that idea that somebody's actually living here. And you can bump into her. And I always tell my guests that you'll see, you'll smell her before you see her because that is what rich people smell like. Oh. Beautiful scent of perfume. Yes. <laughs> Lady Corda. I was wondering where you were going with that, Liz. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, she's got a lovely scent. She's a yes. stunningly beautiful woman. She yes. was the fashion editor of Vogue. She, she married uh, Hugh Campbell. And to become Lady Codder, and the stepchildren call her Lady Macbeth Mark II. So again, there's an interesting story behind that one. Go visit Codder Castle. <laughs> yes, and the gardens there are amazing, and they've got oh. woodland walks and everything. I love all the modern sculptures in the garden yes, and the bird yeah. feeder that's there. It's incredible. Yeah, she's got yeah. beautiful taste. Well, I think I think we've we've actually identified lots of sort of topics for further podcasts so i think we'll pull castles to a close just now and knowing that we will certainly be coming back to look in some of them in greater detail so we're going to go on to susan now who's going to take us to the power behind the throne susan over to you yeah well the, there is a link to your castles here and I, i'm kind of i suppose we think about women or female figures in the past as being these poor downtrodden people who were pretty much just told what to do by their husbands. And if you were a noble woman, you were married off in marriages of convenience, political marriages, and whether you liked it or not, that was your lot in life. But actually in the 14 and 1500s, some of the, the noble women in Scotland had a huge amount of power themselves. And, and part of that was when they got married, their husbands would give them the castles and estates as part of the marriage contract. So, you know, they were given castles like Stirling Castle um, and Blackness and, and various other ones. But if we look at some of these women, they were amazing. Uh, you've got Joan Beaufort, who was uh, alive from about 1404 to 1445, 
Her husband, James I of Scotland, who was the king, he died uh, quite early, um, not long after she bore him a son. And Joan actually managed to stay as the regent for her son because her son was still too young to rule for himself. So aged 33, she was in charge of the crown in Scotland um, and did that for a couple of years. Following on from that, well, the Jameses really weren't very good. James II uh, died when he was quite young as well. He got married to Mary of Gilders, so one of the European um, dynastic people there. And she was 15 years old when she married him. He was 19. And then they had seven children. Six of them survived. But he died quite young. So age 26, young Mary of Gilders, uh, Queen of Scotland, she served as regent. So regent is somebody that basically rules the country on behalf of their children who are um, haven't yet attained their majority. So they're not old enough yet to rule. So she ruled for three years. And then, of course, James III, her son there, um, that she, she ruled for, married Margaret of Denmark. Guess what happens? Same thing all over. Well, not quite all over again. There was a bit of a, a fallout between them. But she was a very strong woman. And uh, she, was, she became a popular queen. She was described as beautiful, gentle and sensible. Uh, and many historians feel that she was better qualified to rule than her husband. Um, then you're on to James IV, who married Margaret Tudor. And she was queen from 1503 to 1513. She was his queen. Uh, but she was regent for her son, James V, between 1513 and 1515. So again, another example of a woman uh, married to the king who he dies off and suddenly she's ruling on behalf of her children. Now, I could go on and on. I mean, a woman I have a lot of time for is Mary of Guise, who married James V. Um, she was a strong woman in her own right. She'd been married before she came from France. She was the second wife of James V. Again, I could go on and on about her for ages. Then you've got Mary, Queen of Scots, her daughter. So she was regent for her daughter from 1554 to 1560. You've got Mary, Queen of Scots, who I would say her first mother-in-law was probably the mother-in-law from hell. <laughs> uh, Catherine de' Medici. Um, she was in France, married to the, the French king or the future French king and then the French king when his father died. And when he died only two years into their marriage, Catherine de Medici was like, thanks for coming, Mary, but uh, I've got my second son who's going to take the throne. So do us a favour and disappear off back to Scotland, will you? So, you know, you've got all these strong women and many more across Europe um, who, were, who, who were there at the time. So, you know, you've, you've got this kind of feeling of what's going on. So, Liz, who's your favourite strong woman in Scottish history? Oh, well, I agree with everything you're saying there. I, mean, I have a special um, weak spot for Mary, Queen of Scots. I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots is what we would call one of those Bovril characters. Bovril is a meaty drink. You either love it or you hate it. And uh, <laughs> Mary, Queen of Scots, like Bonnie Prince Charlie, is one of those characters. I love her. I mean, I think that she had a, a tragic life. As you say, she got chucked out of France and she came back here. Um, time with John Knox, who was really against... Oh, I've got some great quotes from yeah. him. Yeah, so she had to put up with all of that, you know, male-dominated environment, political intrigue all around about her. Um, and in the end, you know, she fell foul of all of that. But she was a strong, intelligent woman. And uh, Helen, how about you? Well, I think, I think you know, just all these people you've mentioned, they, they, they are kind of forgotten 
and bringing them to the forefront has been great, Susan. Thank you very much for doing that. But I think um, Mary of Guise, the mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, um, if we're keeping in this sort of 14 and 1500s, um, she was you know, just stuck with it when she was on her own. She didn't even have the, if you like, the strength of her baby daughter around her uh, when Mary, Queen of Scots had gone to France. So she was on her own battling everything from sort of, uh, religious reformations through to people who just didn't want her because she was foreign. She was foreign. Yeah. So um, I think that she's, she's one. But if we moved forward, I would go to some of these women who graduated in medicine in the early days when every, the world was against them doing medicine. Yeah, just picking up on one, one point quickly there, I think the other thing that we shouldn't underestimate is the power of dowries. I mean, James V, yes. the one thing that he did best was marry well. So he, he married his first wife um, and, and got a huge dowry for that and then went back again and got married to Guise and got another big dowry. So yeah. many of the beautiful from the castles come down to the, the power of the dowry. Yes, and I suppose getting uh, Orkney and Shetland back was all to do with a marriage um, as well. Exactly. So yes. Well, I'm going to close off this topic with a couple of quotes from John Knox. John Knox was a great religious reformer uh, in the 1500s in Scotland. He wanted to change Scotland from Catholicism to being Protestant. And he didn't really like women much. Uh, And women in power or Catholic women in power was even worse. And Mary Queen of Scots was uh, all of those things. So he said on women in power, women in power is a thing most repugnant to nature when women rule and govern over men. Knox also compares the crowning of a woman to putting a saddle on the back of an unruly cow. Let's just say times have moved on. And talking of moving on, I think it's time to move to the little people, Liz, and on to your fairies. Okay, an eerie fairy end to today's podcast, but um, ask you ladies, are you superstitious? Oh, sometimes. Yes, I'll be careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think whether it's it's custom now or, or a deep-seated superstition, most of us would confess to it. But if you take yourself back in time to when times were really hard in Scotland, the climate was against you, everything against you, life on earth was short and tenuous. And so you can understand the strong beliefs that people had in those days. And in the Gaelic culture, um, it was the little people the still folk, the silently moving people, called the she. It's oh, spelled yes. S-I-T-H, Sith, but it's pronounced she. And I think even that is a very motive word. It sums up these little people moving around silently. It was believed that they lived underground in hills or mounds, underneath rocks and earth, and that humans couldn't see them. They were invisible. But down there, under the ground, they lived parallel lives to man. They had their own families, they had their homes, they had occupations, tinkers, farmers, blacksmiths. They were living there, getting on with their their life. You didn't see them. But if you were walking through the woods and you came across one of these fairy mounds, you might just hear the fairy pipes emanating from underground because these little people were said to be very adept at music and dancing and so they liked to play their bagpipes or fairy pipes and that's what triggered this story because I came across one of these fairy hills as I was wandering through woods recently and people still to this day put stones on it they put pictures they paint the stones so there's still a lot of beliefs out there back in in the days gone by the fairy were not there to help because it was believed that they were guilty of playing tricks or making mischief. 
Usually this happened at night or on a Friday, which was known as their travelling day. So you didn't mention the the word Friday um, because it was said to bring bad luck. They came from the West and if you were unlucky, they could turn your cream sour, strike your horse lame or sicken your best cow. So they weren't friendly folk. These were folk to be feared. And there was nothing to be feared more than the thought that they were going to steal your wife during childbirth or your newborn child. It was believed that the fairies themselves couldn't suckle their own children, so they needed a wet nurse, a human wet nurse, and they'd steal your wife after she'd given birth, or if their own child had died, then they might steal your child, and in its place, they'd leave what they called a changeling. And as the child grew up, you would know it was a changeling because they'd be forever crying, complaining. They'd have a huge appetite. They'd drink incessantly and they'd have very large teeth. Now, how many of us have ever thought that we've had a changeling left in place of our own beautiful child? Um, The reason that the child was at risk was because they hadn't yet been brought into the house of God. That would happen at baptism. And so you had to take great precautions to keep them safe. The person responsible for this was the midwife or the howdy. And she would carry out routines like seining, where pine cones were burnt and circulated over the mother and child or water sprinkled over them. Water, in this case, touched by metal, like a a wedding band. Metal played a big part in protection. It could be iron nails hammered into the bedpost or even just a thimble or fish hook kept in your pocket to protect you. Of course, the Bible was crucial to this, and if a mother was really struggling in childbirth, they might open the bubble and blow breath, might open the Bible and blow <laughs> breath onto the face of the woman as she was struggling. Burn an old shoe in the fire, and of course, one that probably you may be aware of, the Rowan tree. The Rowan was a great symbol of protection, and so you'd put a sprig over your cradle and to ward off evil spirits. And if you didn't do that, then the final one was a bit of a last resort, stale urine, because the fairies didn't like stale urine, not surprising, and you'd sprinkle that round your doors and windows. So all in all, you're trying to keep out these she, the little people. And I suppose that's maybe where the term banshee comes from. Correct. Well oh, done. Howling like a banshee, yes. Yes. And also the Sith, remember, if you're into, um, what do you call it, science fiction? Um, Darth oh, Vader, they're not, are they not Sith Star Lords? Wars. Yes, yes the Sith yeah. Lords. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, it's fascinating because the fairies, or the whole culture of fairies is still very real today. Um, I had a tour in Ireland and was fascinated by the fact that even the motorway had had to be realigned so that it did not take away a fairy gathering place, a meeting place of the travelling fairies, which was a tree. And so they had to take the motorway round the tree and leave it so the fairies could travel. Yeah, and we've got the tooth fairy that we still leave there. Yes, yes. And, and that's the kids, that yeah, is real. Inflation's been quite something, you know, for the tooth fairy. <laughs> well, not up in Caithness. In Caithness, they would wrap the, the tooth up in a little bundle and they'd leave it at a mouse hole. So the mouse took it oh. away. So a bit cheaper. It didn't leave any money behind. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. <laughs> I think one of my favourite kind of fairy stories is the, is the Gruagach. You know, when 
to stop your, your cows going off their milk or whatever else, then you would put an offering of milk in a kind of sit a hollow in a stone and that would be left for your, your local gruagach, you know, the local fairy. Um, and that would hopefully protect your cows from their milk going sour or anything like that. And so much of these have just become customs, haven't they? That, um, you know, I remember going out with my grandfather and just leaving a little sweeter treat in the hollow of a tree just for the, the, the fairies. It was just good to go down to the, the woods and do this. That's right. And you can still see we were in Feshy Bridge the other weekend and on one of the trees there is a little fairy door. Ooh. So it had been put onto the tree and painted. So it was lovely. Yeah. And of course, the other thing that you sometimes see when you're out on your wanders, don't know if you've seen one, Susan, a clutey well. Not so much around Perthshire, but I know of the one up in the Black Isle. Munlochy, yeah. And a clutey well is where, and again, it's across all cultures in Asia and whatever, but if you've got troubles, if you've got worries, to take a cloth and tie it, so that as a, tie it to a tree um, or a well where the water washes over it, washing all your troubles away as the cloth disintegrates. I once had a whole tour and their whole reason for being in Scotland was to go <laughs> to find the fairies. I remember that one. <laughs> so it was it was great fun. It was it was a great learning experience for me as well. So where did you take them? <laughs> oh well, if you like, many of the usual places we spent quite time on Iona, mm -hmm. not at the Abbey, but looking for fairies around the the west side of the island, and we went to Fortingale and up to uh -huh. up Ben Lors, and of course Shahalian, the fairy mountain. And I just have this abiding recollection of Helen and the driver lying face <laughs> upwards, flat on the ground in a fairy circle, trying to attract the fairies. <laughs> That's right. Yes, that, that, that I was need a, photo uh, evidence of that. That's got oh. to be on the uh, on social media. <laughs> that was really, you know, it was one of those, It was there were a lovely group of people, lovely to enter into their world in the sure and certain knowledge that in 14 days you were coming out of the world back into your own. <laughs> it just gives you all a glimpse into a, 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 day in the, a day in the life of a tour guide, an ordinary day. <laughs> so on that topic, moving on, let's have our words of the day, Susan. Mine is one that my parents taught me. So my mum was born and brought up in Airdrie until she was 16. So that's just outside Glasgow on the east side of Glasgow. Uh, so a lot of my words come from her. And this one I absolutely love. The kludgy. <laughs> Anyone know what the kludgy is? Yes, know it well. Yes, the kludgy is the toilet. Yes, the toilet or the restroom um, yeah. for our international visitors. It's the kludgy. So, you know, you say, oh, I'm just away at the kludgy. Although mum, mum these days is like, well, you can't use that word anymore. So I, I don't know for her, it's, 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 it's too uh, uncouth maybe for my mum. I don't know, but it was certainly one that they taught us. So kludgy is my one. Helen, how about you? My word is scunnered, scunnered, S-C-U-N-N-E-R-E-D. You're fair scunnered, you're fed up, you're bored with it. Um, or you could just take a scunner to something. In other words, you just, I really don't like that anymore. Well, I hope the folk aren't scunnered with our podcast today. Oh, I hope today. not, no. But if, you, if you'll just humour me, mine is more the, in the form of a little story. I try to connect my words to the fairy people and the superstition. And my word is spindona. Now, there's never heard a that one. story attached to this. Remember I told you that it was considered that the child was at greatest danger before they were baptised and brought into the house of God. Well, it was also considered very bad luck 
to see the child's name before they were baptised. You didn't see the name until the minister uttered it. He was to be the first person to utter it. So we have in church the baptism of the baby and we've got Jeannie and John standing there and uh, very proud of their baby wrapped up in its shawl and they hand it over to the minister. The minister does his bit. He takes the holy water to put on to the uh, to baptize the child and he says I baptize this child and he nods at the father for the father to give him a name and the father says Spindona and the minister looks aghast and he thinks well we'll have another go at this so he says I baptize this child and he nods again at the father and the father goes Spindona and the minister thinks oh well we've got to go with this here then so the minister says I baptise this child Spindona. And John says, no, it's Pendonor. And he nods at this no. little piece of paper with a, a pin, pinning the name Jeannie to the shawl of the child. So oh. the child was Jeannie, not Spindona. I think it's lovely. It's a lovely story, Liz. Fabulous. Uh, and on that note, uh, thank you very much, ladies, for your time. It's been great getting together and having a blether with you. There we have it, our blether for this week. If you'd like to engage with us on social media, everybody out there, um, we're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as Scottish Blethers. We'd love to hear what you think of the episode and any topics that you might like us to cover in, the f- in future blethers. So please do get in touch. So it's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye.